this morning, um, as we jump into 1 Corinthians, uh, just uh, to be completely honest, we are nowhere close to being done um, with 1 Corinthians, so just so you're aware of that. Uh, we are done with the first argument, but uh, we got ways to go. So uh, we are cruising right along into chapter 3 this morning, and uh, I divided this chapter up because I feel like this is one that I truly, truly wanted to have as a standalone sermon this morning. Um, this morning, what Paul talks about towards the end of this argument is fantastic, and I love it. And so I'm hoping this morning you leave encouraged today. This isn't one of those go-do-more sermons. Um, this is one of those, like, you should know who you are this morning, and hopefully as you know who you are, that excites you a little bit to be like, okay, I'm going to go bust down a wall because I know who I am this week, right? And so I'm hoping that is true today. I can only do so much, so I am praying that the Spirit of God works uh, in our lives this this week and uh, makes these things true because we're closing the first major section um, on 1 Corinthians. So chapter 1 to chapter 3 have all been on this one idea of divisions of Apollo, Cephas, Christ, Peter, this whole thing, right? It's this whole argument. We're going to kind of bring it to a close this morning because Paul is going to bring it to a close and remind us who we are. So we're going to see this morning that it's for those who are in Christ, for those who have put your life into Christ, um, you don't need to go back to Ancestry.com and figure out where you've come from. Um, nothing against them, but you don't need to do that this morning because Paul is going to tell us where we came from and he's going to give us some hope this morning in that. So Paul is going to use some imagery that I believe will show who we are. It shows us our true ancestry and reveals uh, who our true family is. And hopefully, as knowing who we are, we're going to be less prone to division as a church and uh, we'll be less prone to the two major areas that Paul has been dealing with for these three long chapters. Because Paul has been dealing predominantly with two big things, pride on the one end of the spectrum and insecurity on the other side of the issue. We said last week that disgrace always follows pride. You go down the road of pride long enough and eventually we end up on our face. It's just the way it works. And so I want to just ask a question. You don't have to raise your hands. Um, you don't have to nudge the person next to you. Please don't shoot them a glance. This, this, this is not that kind of moment, okay? Don't raise their hand for them. This is not that kind of church, okay? But here's, here's a question. How many of you have made a dumb decision out of arrogance or insecurity, right? Um, and all of us are like, been there and done that. Many times this week, I've made those decisions because there's something about our pride that won't let us be wrong, and so we make dumb decisions. Or there's something about our insecurity that we want to be liked so much that we'll make dumb decisions. And Paul is addressing both of those in this first chapter. Not only do we make dumb decisions, how many of you, you don't have to raise your hands again, but how many of you have followed someone out of arrogance or insecurity that w led you into really, really bad territory, right? Uh, this happened all the time to me um, in college predominantly, uh, which is funny because I went to Moody Bible Institute and you're like, that's a Christian school. Yeah, it is. Um, but... Uh, our floor, uh, our floor got into the, uh, the rule book. Uh, we actually made a rule. That was awesome. Uh, they made a rule because of our floor, and uh, we followed some really dumb people, me included, who led some of the charges, and uh, it was awesome. So we had these like water wars, and these water wars turned deadly. A kid almost fell out, 13-story building. Uh, it was intense. It was intense. And as a result of this kid almost busting his head, well, he did bust his head open in stitches and was hanging out the window <laughs> out of this thing in downtown Chicago, uh, they said, we're going to make a rule. And uh, the rule is no more interfloor pranks. And we're like, oh, 
because we were the best at it. And uh, I mean, there was like, this is a side note, but just to know how awesome we were. Um, we, <laughs> I mean, there were, you know, those like recycled things, like the blue receptacles that have like all the recyclables in them. We dumped all those out, filled it in the shower with water. And then we took that thing to the stairwell and we just like dumped buckets down the stairwell to get to the second floor because the floor beneath us was our floor that we were pranking. It was so bad. They, we destroyed carpets. We sent kids to hospitals and it was bad. It was bad. And all because of arrogance and insecurity because we followed, sometimes me, sometimes others, out of, pr- <laughs> out of pride and out of the fact that they will not one-up our floor, ever. They will not do that thing in the microwave that I can't tell you about that they did to our microwave. They won't do it anymore. It was bad. It was bad. So... All of us have been there, maybe not to that degree, but all of us have been there where someone or something we followed out of pride or insecurity, and it's led us into some really bad decisions. I have followed, I have listened to, I have done things because I was arrogant enough to believe that I wouldn't pay the price for it. We did. (laughs) Um, And I was also so insecure that I would do whatever the floor demanded that I do. Joel, should we do it? Yes, let's do it, right? And then it was terrible. And so all these things, pride and insecurity, lead us to different things, not only in that world, but maybe you've been in church long enough to realize that if you've been in church long enough, sometimes even churches um, out of pride or insecurity have led to church alliances, church splits, cutting corners uh, with pastors and things that have brought some pastors down because of arrogance. I could never fall into that temptation, right? Um, The insecurities of a pastor have led others down paths that have just ruined their ministry. And many, as a result of even being in churches because of pride and insecurity, have lost some really, really good friends. And so this morning, applications right off the get-go, and that is this, that sometimes we need reminded by Paul that arrogance and insecurity are going to lead you into places that you have no business being. So let's begin in verses 18 to 20. We're going to kind of be scattered around this morning. We're not going to go um, verse by verse like in order, so we're going to kind of jump around the passage, but we'll be in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 16 all the way to 23. So this morning we're going to start in 18 to 20, though. Let no one deceive himself. (laughs) If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. First thing he says about arrogance in, in this idea of pride and insecurity With pride, the solution, honestly, comes down to two simple words. One, two words. (laughs) Admit it, right? That's where pride, if we're going to attack it, it comes down to these two words. Admitting it. Admitting it is admitting we need help, right? Many in this room, me included, have a very hard time admitting that we need help. I can do it. I got it. I can handle it. Bring on all the pressures of the world. I can put them on my shoulders and walk it because I've done it before and I'll do it again. 
And pride leads to some really dumb decisions when we don't admit that we need the help that we need. The Church of Jesus Christ, Community Bible Church, is here to help alleviate those things off of your shoulders that you feel as if you have to carry on your own. And sometimes the first step in getting through pride is simply the fact of, I've got to admit that I need the help that I make the phone call, that I, that I send the text, that I send the email out. Hey, it has been a rough week, and I wish I could tell you that I could handle it. But I'm telling you, this week has been, so, not personally, but you've maybe been there where the week has been so hard that you're like, I need somebody else to walk this with me. And that's part of why groups are so important to us. It's why I feel like this church is the way it is. I'm so proud of this church and the fact that when people have called or texted or sent or said, I can't handle it, I can't handle this, I need to admit that I need help, our church has responded well. And I love that about you guys here at Community. I love that you guys take that upon yourselves to do that. The first step is admitting it. The second step may be in the insecurity. If Maybe it's not pride for you. Maybe your, your bent is insecurity. You make a lot of dumb decisions out of insecurity and comparing yourself to other people. And as a result of that insecurity, you end up going down places and following people you never should follow. And there's two words, I think, that come into the insecurity. So if pride is admit it, then I believe the cure for insecurity is accept it, Okay. It's their ability to accept the help once it's offered. And I don't know which spectrum you fall on. Some of you may fall on the spectrum of, I have a hard time admitting that I need help, and I'm just blind to it. Others of you know full well that you need the help, but you're determined you're not going to accept it. I I can handle it. I don't want help. I don't want to be the victim here. I'm not going to accept it. But Paul says in these first two, this foolishness and all these arguments that have come down the pike have come down to pride and insecurity, the ability to admit that we need help and the ability to accept the help once it's offered. John Piper, who I I admire a ton, says this, and it's a longer quote, so let me just kind of read it and you can kind of listen to it uh, as it comes across. But he says this, human pride is rooted in two kinds of self-deception. One is the deception that I can handle my own problems, and the other is the deception that nobody can handle my problems. Or, there are two ways for the pride of man to dishonor Christ. He says, one is to feel no need for Jesus, for him, and the other is to feel your need is so great that Jesus can't meet that need. The one says, I don't need a crucified Christ to help me. The other says, a crucified Christ can't help me. The one looks strong, the other looks weak, but both are demeaning and demoting the grace of God. This morning, as we finish up this issue of division, which end of the spectrum do you land on? I'll never admit I need help or I will never accept the help because both are dangerous and both can be played out every single day with those around us and we can play it out with Christ. God's busy. He's probably got a schedule bigger than mine. I don't want to bother him. But in reality, we diminish the grace of Jesus Christ if we don't constantly say, I need it, I'll accept the help given to me. And all of this is what he's talking about when he talks about this idea of deceiving yourself, right? These two things, these these insecurities and these prides, they both fall on five little words in verse 18, These five little words go like this. Let no one deceive themselves, right? 
If you boiled all of that down, let no one deceive yourself. Wisdom, age is wisdom of the world, folly with God. If you boiled all of verses 18 to 20 down, it starts with verse 18, the very beginning. Let no one deceive themselves. Because that's where it all begins. We end up deceiving ourselves or believing lies that aren't true. The church in Corinth started to believe some pretty big things about themselves. Man, Paul is the best. I'm going to follow him. Whatever Paul says goes. Apollos, whatever he says goes. And then you start to get into these little tribes and it starts to kind of work itself through the entire church to where the church was literally physically arguing back and forth with each other. But he says it begins with this key phrase, let no one deceive themselves. And for many of us, I can tell you and tell me, I've been there, done that. (laughs) I've deceived myself into plenty of situations that I should not have been in, and you could probably relate. This week, I had the um, opportunity to to go to a leader's conference. Bart uh, invited me to go to the Leader's Edge out in New Point, and um, I thought it was a fantastic leadership conference, and, and the biggest thing that was some takeaways was the fact of we've got to get stronger. Like we've, we've got to start just facing the things in leadership that we need to face and not run from. And we need to start, stop, we need to stop deceiving ourselves into thinking the wrong way. And so he, uh, the, one of the speakers was Tim Kite and he's a leadership coach for the Ohio State Buckeyes, which is even more reason to listen to him. And uh, he was mentioning, and some of you guys are like, nope, just turned him off. Some of you guys are like already shutting down. Please stick with me, okay? Even if you're not a fan, which you should be because you know, salvation's at stake for you. So um, I'm just saying. Uh, and so uh, as he's speaking, I was like, whoa, tweet that. Um, so as he was speaking, he's talking about this idea of deceiving ourselves or this mindset process, he calls. And so he had some slides up that looked like this. And this, this deception starts in this kind of four boxes. And he says, there's a focus that we can have uh, at the very top and, and whatever takes our focus, whatever the issue is, whatever the problem we're, we're working on as a leader or as a mom or as a dad or as a coworker, whatever you're focusing on, whatever your attention is on, the problem is there and the problem is big and the problem demands our focus. As we deal with the problem, we kind of talk ourselves into a couple different scenarios, right? We, don't, we all do it. Some of us do it out loud, <laughs> and some of us do it just inside, but we all self-talk. We all kind of tell us where we're going to end up being if we deal with a problem or if we don't deal with a problem. And then from there, the self-talk kind of goes into these feelings, and then your feelings start to kick in. And then you're like, oh, okay, so I'm feeling anxious, I'm feeling out of control, so that should be a sign to me that I should not do this thing. Uh, my feelings are telling me that I'm angry, so therefore I will re- re- revolt and I will have a conversation. But these feelings then kind of get out of whack, and then that leads to our actions, and then our actions can go into this focus. Or on the positive side, we get a good problem. We, we've realized the solution. We know the solution. We've talked it through. We've looked at Scripture and gotten a wise counsel. Our feelings are, are, are strong. And we're like, I'm feeling confident in this decision. We take action, and then we deal with the next problem. Some of us, we can kind of work through that very easily. Some of us, on the other hand, our, our, self, our, our mindset goes from the problem, we skip self-talk, and we go directly into feelings, into action, into the problem again, right? We don't self-talk, we just kind of let our feelings do all that for us. So if I'm feeling a certain way, I'll either react or I won't react, and that becomes an issue. And then there's others of us in the room who we don't have self-talk or feelings, we're just robots, and we just go problem, action, problem, action, 
problem, action. Feelings are, they just take too much time. I don't even know what those are. I can't identify them, nor do I want to identify them. I don't need a counselor. Let's just take action, right? And we don't talk. We don't do anything. We just live in our own world. And we talk to, I don't know who guys talk to. We really don't really, I don't know. We talk to ourselves kind of. We don't really call anybody. We don't really do anything. We just kind of like, it's action. We just do it. And, and we just kind of move in that direction. Regardless though, let me kind of tweak this a little bit and, and say what Paul is saying. When we deceive ourselves, the problem is that we're not inserting scripture. And so I'd say if there's a problem that we're dealing with, we insert scripture, allow scripture to talk to us. And as scripture talks to us, it will define our feelings and let our scripture define our feelings rather than letting our feelings define scripture. Then we take action. If you don't believe me, um, David himself in the Psalms actually writes uh, a powerful little phrase where he says in this one Psalm, he says, why are you so downcast, O my soul? And he says, my feelings are telling me one thing. But he says, but the truth is, I know who God is. And God is bigger than my feelings. And he works himself through this cycle. We do it all the time. But this self-deception can begin and end here. And Paul is reminding us in this passage, he's saying, hey, when you think through these things, when you have these issues, remind yourself there's a problem. Go to scripture, let them address your feelings and move in so that we do not fall into this, let no one deceive themselves. And I find it amazing that even though Paul was not a psychologist, he wasn't a counselor, this is written around 50 AD, that the psychology still proves true today, which is such a good relief to a God that you serve, who's like throwing in psychology and counseling in the midst of Paul, in the midst of this church in Corinth, and we can still go to it today. I love how advanced Paul's thinking is and how he processes this information. But here's the thing, both insecurity and pride can come by way of self-deception. And so thankfully, Paul says, okay, that's the problem. Let me give you the solution this morning. Both insecurity and pride can come by self-deception. Thankfully, Paul says, this is the solution. And the solution is focusing on the truth of who we are as followers of Jesus Christ. If you have put your full weight into Jesus Christ, and maybe that's you this morning. I've, I've, I've surrendered my life. I'm, I'm in him. For those who haven't, and you're like, I'm just kind of checking this out. I'm just not really sure what I believe yet. Awesome. We're glad you're here as well. And hopefully this makes sense to you. But for those who have put their faith into Jesus Christ, he says, here is your solution in verses 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, he will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Do you not know that you are God's temple? This is paired with another time that he brings it up in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19. And he says that your body is a temple, that is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And, and if you've been in church long enough, sometimes they throw this verse out as far as why we shouldn't drink and smoke and date girls that do the, those things and all that kind of stuff. But that, that, that's not really the point of this, 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 this passage. It's kind of taken out of context because if you look at 619, it's, this is a freebie, by the way. This has nothing to do with this. But in verse six and, uh, verse, uh, chapter 6 and 19, it's actually dealing with a whole other topic than smoking and drinking and your body being polluted by these things. Paul is making a bigger argument than why you shouldn't put certain toxins into your body. That's not the point of this. He is telling us something far more miraculous and something far bigger than just drinking and smoking and, and not doing those or should doing those, okay? This idea of do you not know that you are God's temple is loaded 
with theology. So buckle in, give me five minutes, and I want to just kind of walk through what Paul's talking about here when he talks about that you are God's temple, okay? So for those who like geek out in theology and you're like, this is going to be good, let's write this stuff down. Um, for those of you who don't, come back to me in a couple minutes, okay? And, and, and uh, you'll, you'll hopefully gain something along the way. But here is this, here's why he uses this, and here's the beautiful thing. In the Greek, and everybody's like, oh, okay, here we go. But in the Greek, the word for temple that they normally use for temple would be the word herios, okay? It's the word that they would say as far as the tabernacle or the, 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 the temple would have been that kind of word. That's not the word Paul uses here. The Paul uses the word for temple, he uses the word naos, which is the holy of holies inside of the temple where the priests would meet with God. That's where he's talking about. So he's not talking just temple. He's talking about a certain room in the temple that was reserved for the priests to meet with the living God. Now, let me kind of back all of that up in case you're new. And a lot of you, maybe, I'm not sure what you're talking about. What do you mean temple? Where, where are you going? So let me kind of give you some history, what I mean by temple. First off, in the Old Testament, there was a temple that was built, okay? Let's throw this up real quick, give you guys some, some background. The temple was built in Jerusalem around 968 BC. You can read about it in 1 Kings chapter 6, 1 Kings chapter 8, 2 Chronicles chapter 3. The temple was built by a guy named Solomon. Before we get into Solomon, we got to realize that the temple was, was something that was a secondary to something that happened all the way back in creation. You're like, wait a second, there was a temple in creation? What are you talking about? Well, not necessarily a temple, but let me kind of work through this. Before we had the temple, we had the tabernacle, which is the next one. As you have this tabernacle, the tabernacle was established by Moses in the wilderness, and it looked like that. There was the exact dimensions of how it was to be made. There's a bunch of rules as far as how it was made, but it looked like that. There was an outer court, then you went into the temple, and then inside the temple there was other rooms in the temple until eventually you made yourself into the Holy of Holies, which is where God is said to reside. Here's the interesting thing, and I, I'm going to keep this as a, um, this is just a rabbit trail, but I'm going to keep this as an open-handed issue, okay? So I'm not going to go down fighting on this one, but I just find it interesting that in creation there's seven days of creation, and in the creation of the temple, there's seven speeches and one day of rest. Does that make sense to anybody? Isn't that interesting? That at creation, God says, I'm going to create it in seven days. When he creates the tabernacle, he says, I'm going to create it in six different speeches and a day of rest in Exodus chapter 31, verse 12. And they get to the temple. It gets even weirder at the temple because there's, there's a form of seven when Solomon builds the temple as well. But we're not going to get into that. But that's just very, very interesting that it seems as if to me, God, from the beginning of creation, was trying to dwell with his people. God, since Eden, was dwelling with his people. He was dwelling with Adam and Eve until they made the choice that we don't want him anymore. We're going to choose sin. Thank you very much. And then it's, it's this story of the scripture where God again and again and again and again is trying to dwell with his people and humanity is either rejecting him and saying, we don't want it, or receiving him and saying, yes, please come. I want more of, of you. 
But this is the second phase. This is the first phase, actually. This is where God says, build a tabernacle. This thing moved around from place to place throughout the wilderness. So they would pack it up. They would put it back together, much like, you know, you know the feeling. Every Sunday, you'd get the trailer. (laughs) You'd bring the trailer in. You'd unpack the trailer. You'd throw it into a high school or an elementary school. You'd pack it back up. You'd put it back into storage and pray that there'd be no snow the next week so you wouldn't have to unpack it again in the snow. You know this, right? You know the world. And you would pack up your church. You'd bring it back and every kind of thing would be fine. They would do this. The tabernacle would be torn down, be built back up. But it was the place where God was said to reside. And this lasted all throughout the wilderness. And then eventually Solomon was able to build the temple in 968 underneath the instructions of God and King David. And he built this temple. And here's what happened at this temple. Let's go to the next one. At this temple... God came down and resided. Can you throw that next one up for me real quick? And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Now, we read that, but can you imagine when the power of God came down on the temple, so much so that the priests, the holiest of holies, those pastors who were the best of the best, to meet with God, could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And the glory filled it so much so that it was just too intense. I can't go near it because God is in the building. That was the temple. That was where God resided. Everybody knew that that was the house of God. Now, fast forward a couple years, the temple ends up getting destroyed years later by Nebuchadnezzar in 586, and the temple is destroyed. And then Nehemiah comes back later and, and rebuilds the temple in 515 BC. And the temple was in existence, and God again resides, and God again fills, and God again is at the temple. And then after that, the temple is then destroyed much later after Jesus' life. In 70 AD, the Jews try to, this is historical, the Jews start to do a revolt against Rome. Rome does not going to have it. They come in, they, they sack Jerusalem, and they destroy Jerusalem so that all that is left of the temple today is the West Wall. You know that, right? I mean, it's still in existence today. That is the only part of the temple left in existence because of how much devastation they did to the temple. This temple was always, always inadequate. It housed God. It was a place to meet God, but there was more. There was a promise given that there would be more. I want to play this quick clip so you can kind of see what that more is, and then we'll finish up from here. So check this out. And here we come to the story of Jesus. He said that through him, God's presence and rule was coming into our world in a new way. And he presented himself as a new kind of priest. But Jesus wasn't a priest, and he didn't work in the temple. Right. Jesus said that God's presence, his rest and rule, was filling the world through his own life, death, and resurrection. Jesus was claiming that he was the true temple, and this new temple would expand out to include all of creation. That's a really big claim. And it got even bigger. After his resurrection, Jesus said that God's presence would come to dwell in and among his followers so that they would become many temples communities of people where God rests and rules. Exactly. This is the Bible's vision of the church, which is described as a temple. Not a building, but people. Yeah, like when Peter says, you all are living stones built up as a temple for God's spirit to dwell. So, at the end of the story, 
Do we ever get a new physical temple? Well, not exactly. What we see is a renewed cosmic temple, just like Genesis 1. And this new creation doesn't need a temple building, because through Jesus, all creation is now the place where God rests and rules the world with his people. Here's the amazing prophecy that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ said, I am the temple. He says, you, you, you destroy it, and in three days, I'll rebuild it. He's talking about himself. And as he is the temple, he is promised by the power of the Holy Spirit, which is what Paul is talking about here, that the Spirit of God dwells in you. That same force that was in 1 Kings that people could not go near, that those people could not touch, those people could not come in the, the presence of, fills and dwells those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Now, it is so difficult to wrap our minds around something that big or to try and figure out through physics and science and, 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 and details, how does that work? How does God, the creator of the world, full of power and glory, who is far larger than we could ever imagine, spoke into existence a galaxy that is ever expanding by millions and millions and millions of years, expanding and expanding and expanding, always growing to the point that we have very little that we know about all that exists in our universe because of how big our God is and as huge and as magnificent as he is, sent his son down as the new temple And then this new temple says to us who believe in him, hey, when I go, I'm going to send a helper. That helper is called the Holy Spirit and he will live inside of you. And when he comes and lives inside of you, you become like little mini temples that the power of God resides in you. (laughs) That's insane. To many of us, we're like, I'm not worthy enough to carry that. Are you kidding me? Do you know my week? Have you seen me? I'm a mess. I, I, don't, I don't have a, te- I'm not a temple. But God, it's beautiful. But God says, I see my son in you, dwelling in the Holy Spirit in you. And you are my temple to live out in this world Christ's example to this world. You don't go out as you anymore. (laughs) And I think we forget this. We assume in church that we do all the right things and if we get the right language down, if we say the right thing, if we evangelize the right people, then eventually we'll get it, all that, which is great. But this is a hope that is bigger because this hope is not banking on you. This hope is not banking on if you get it right. This hope is banking on the God of the universe living inside of us, making us these little temples, walking around with the power of God in us, that we should be one, that we should be mimicking and showing Christ to the world. I, 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 I wanted this to set alone because as I keep reading this and studying this, I mean, you could spend months trying to dissect this one little phrase, you are the temple of God. You could, I mean, there are so many different avenues that this could go down. But for the sake of time this morning, I hope that you understand the magnitude of what he is saying to you right now this morning. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. 
So get over yourself and stop trying to think that you are the end-all be-all because of your ability to do or not do or insecurities that I'm not that that important, I really can't and I really shouldn't. Who am I to really, uh, right? Who you are is loved and cared for by Jesus Christ and the temple of the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. And when we understand that, he closes the 21 and 23. If we can understand that, it makes a difference in the church. Verse 21 23. Because you are temples, because you are foolishness is, is, because you are foolish, because you are not wise, because God is all powerful, it's only Him. 21. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God. Do you see the pattern? <laughs> this is so cool. All of the world is yours. Put yourself in all, all, of, all these things are yours. If you're in a box, and if I had a box here, you could fill all these things, and they say they're yours. Paul is yours. <laughs> to which the church in Corinth was probably like, mm, no, thank you. You know what I mean? Like, they don't like Paul. They're not a big fan of Paul. And the team of Apollos would be like, we'll keep, we'll keep Apollos in our box, but we don't want Peter. We don't want Paul. We don't want Jesus. Ooh, well, maybe we probably should keep Jesus in that one. Um, and so we, we don't like the box. We, we kind of fill our own boxes. But he says, all of it is yours. The world is yours. Life is yours. Death is yours. He's talking about extremes. The present and the future, they are all yours in this box. And then he says, take that box, put it in Christ's box because you are in Christ. Then take the Christ box and put it in God's box because they're all him. And all of it is the power of God dwelling in you. All are yours. And if all is ours, and if we are in Christ, and we don't need to worry to follow up pride and insecurity anymore, we don't allow them to lead us into disgrace, we instead say, all of it is yours. So let me make this practical for Community Bible Church today, right? Just as it was for Corinth. He would say to us, all of these little temples, all of these believers in Jesus Christ, they're yours. The pastor, he's yours. Worship leader, he's yours, right? Servants, they're yours. Small group leaders, they're yours. Believers in Jesus Christ around you, they're yours. Use them. Make them yourself available to them. They are all yours to love and enjoy and use. And that is why the beauty of the church exists. We're not independent little beings out there to get Jesus and my life right. Does that make sense? We're not just individualistic, me and Jesus, me and Jesus, me and Jesus will get to eternity. He says, no, all are yours. We, we, are the body of Jesus Christ. And so that's why groups and everything are so important to us because we believe in a we mentality, not an I mentality. And when it's we, all of it is yours to enjoy. You are sitting next to, if somebody has relationship to Jesus Christ, you are sitting next to somebody with gifts, talents, abilities that are meant to be given to this church and used in a way to benefit those around us. Each and every one of you have a gift, have an ability, have a talent that is yours. And it's to be used as the body because all are yours, all of them. So don't be insecure in asking. Don't be, don't be worried about should I bother or should I not? All of it is ours. And not only that, but the world is ours. It's, it's all ours to enjoy. So enjoy it, right? 
We're going to get into freedoms later in 1 Corinthians, and it's going to get so much better. But for now, just know you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and all of this is yours to enjoy. So, how can we, Community Bible Church, even in this new sanctuary, new building, be the kind of people who spread the humbling, hope-giving grace of God to as many people as possible? How can we take our lives out there is the question to wrestle with. This text is designed to help us avoid some dangers, pride, and security. But one of the dangers is shifting our boasting off of God and onto even maybe even this building to begin to glory less in Christ and more in architecture, to become space-focused rather than grace-focused. And the danger of the text is saying, boasting in human achievements is a dead-end street. If you forget that you exist for Christ and that your boasting should be in him alone, then your new sanctuary, new building, whatever it is, will be nothing but a monument to human foolishness. So he says, don't be deceived. What is exalted among men is not what God desires. And the danger is to face a paralysis of fear, the disabling thought that there's too much against us and we can't do it, right? That, that maybe we don't have enough money to go out and, and, and reach the world or, or maybe we don't have enough time to go out and reach the world or, or maybe it's our parking lot is against us. Yes, amen it is, right? And, and it's all against us and we could never make it work. But the truth of the matter is God doesn't care about our parking lot. He doesn't really care about the building. He cares about you and I being those many temples living in our world and taking Christ outside of it. Don't get wrapped up into a building. Please hear me, Community Bible Church. And for those who've been with us for a couple years, I'm speaking directly to you. Do not get caught up in a tool of a building, okay? This is a tool. That's all this is. This is not making us a church. What makes us a church is Jesus Christ and his power in us, and that is fluid, and that moves out into the world. And the more we're out in the world, the better we have the chance to impact that world. This text is giving us an answer, and it's written here that God is dead serious. He wants to use us. All things are yours, whether Paul or Paulus or Cephas of the world, life or death, all things are yours, and you are in Christ, and Christ is in God. This morning, may we live in that. May we know who we are. And as a result, may we go out and reach this community. And unity is beyond this because we know who we are and our confidence is in Christ, in us. Let me pray. God, this morning, I am always blown away by this passage. I am always taken aback at the fact that you live in me, that you desire to use me, that your temple is said to be me. That's crazy. That your Holy Spirit is living in us. And so I thank you for the huge gift and opportunity that you have given to us that we get to be your example in this world. Father, may we go out this morning not with more to do, not with more guilt and here's what I should be and shouldn't be doing, but may we leave today knowing who we are. We are called by you. We, are, we have the power of the Holy Spirit living in us. And as a result of you living in us, oh, wow, what, what could you do? Maybe that's the question this morning. What could you do through me? What could you do through this church in this next year, in these next two years, next five years, what could you do through Community Bible Church that would blow our minds? Because you are not done. We have so much to do. There are so many people who need hope, who need Jesus around here, who need life. 
So I pray, God, that you would remind us who we are this morning. May we live in it. May we sing it. May we rejoice in it. We are yours. It's in your name we pray. Amen.